and you're like, man, you look like you stopped updating your style back in the 80s. You know, and I, I was thinking after I read that study, I was like, yeah, you know, my wardrobe, a lot of the times, my wife doesn't let me wear a lot of the stuff, but she's like, it's like, it reflects the early 2000s when I was in high school and the things that were popular there. You know, we get stuck. We get into ruts. We go, we do the same things over and over again just because we've always done them. Uh, but you know what? You don't have to remain stuck in your life. You can live a life of motion and progress. But I was thinking about the word stuck, and it, this is the definition. It means to be or to become fixed or jammed in one place as a result of an obstruction. And we all end up with obstacles in our lives, obstructions at one point or another. And I think sometimes the enemy tries to throw out obstructions to get you to stop moving forward. But you realize obstacles are not a problem for you. Because the Holy Spirit can lead you this way and this way, and you just end up sidestepping around things, and you can live a life of motion. And we were looking at the children of Israel in Exodus chapter 13 and 14 last week, and God pulled some miraculous things to get them freed out of 430 years of slavery. That's a long time. Let's put this in perspective. That's about 10 generations. In the Bible, they consider a generation 40 years for people who aren't following God and 70 years for those who are. It's kind of interesting how he has different categories for whether or not you're following in his precepts. And I started thinking about that and because when you follow God, it says he satisfies you with long life. And so generations look different for those who follow God. And so 430 years, uh, they weren't following God at this point, and so that's 10 and a half generations. That means that the ones that were being freed that day, they were born in slavery. Their parents were born in slavery. Their parents' parents were born in slavery. Their parents' parents' parents were born in slavery. It's a long line of slavery for several generations at this point, and God miraculously gets them in motion. We know, remember the story that there was the 10 plagues that finally Pharaoh and the Egyptians were like, just leave. And as Pastor Robin pointed out last week, that it says that they, they left with silver and gold and that there was none feeble among them. And I always love that story how, you want to know how they got the silver and gold? They banged on the doors of the Egyptians and said, hey, we're leaving. Can we have your silver and gold? And the Egyptians were so exasperated at that point, they're like, here, take it and leave. And so they, they, get, they, get, they come out of slavery, but their time of slavery did not begin because of burdens, because of failures. The story of the children of Israel in, in Egypt actually began as a blessing. As God sending the children of, of Jacob down to the Israel through miraculous means through the son Joseph in order to provide for them in a time of famine. And there's things that God will have you do and move you places in order to bring you provision. Yeah. You have to recognize the season when it's time to move on. And they didn't recognize that season. You want to know why? Well, if it turns, comfort breeds complacency. And that's exactly what happened to the children of Israel. Do you know where they ended up? When they, got, when they moved down there to be with Joseph, they landed up in the land of Goshen, which was the best land, the most fertile land, 
Joseph set them up pretty good. And they began to multiply and multiply and multiply. And finally, along came a Pharaoh that didn't remember Joseph and all he had done for the nation. And they looked out and they said, why do we allow these Israelites to stay here? They've got the best and they're multiplying like crazy. If we're not careful, they're going to take over. But comfort bred complacency into the children of Israel. And we get in the same position you know, you ever find that when things get a little easy, you kind of let off the gas? But when things are a little tough, you're more likely to try a little harder because you don't like the situation you're in. You know, uh, a number of years ago, Robin and I found ourselves, um, we, we were really in debt. And it was basically by our own stupid decisions. You know, a lot of people look around and blame others. You need to look at yourself first. And actually, it took something that Dave Ramsey had said that just kind of went off in me when he said it. He says, when you look at the problems when it comes to your finances, you'll often come to the conclusion that you are the problem, which is good because you're the only you you can fix. You can't fix those around you, and you can't fix your situations, but you can fix you. And so we had found ourselves... In, in debt and finally we like we, we said to each other we, we need to do something about this and so we went to God we began to put uh, plans in, pra- in motion and before you know it we had paid off all our debt in record time it was like amazing God just came through with miracle after miracle after miracle and it was just like oh yeah praise God but you know a few months down the road once the pressure was off I started to notice we were going back and making the same decisions we were making before the problem because you will always make the same decisions with the same decision-making process unless you change it. And comfort often breeds complacency, and that's exactly what happened with the children of Israel. And I love Philippians chapter 3. That's something Paul says. He says, I want to know Christ and to experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. I want to suffer with him, sharing in his death. Paul At this point in his life, he's already been traveling through most of the known world, establishing churches. He's got a good following. He's done good work. At this point, you could could understand if Paul decided he wanted to let off the gas a little bit. But even in the point of success, his desire was, I want to know God more. I want to experience the power that raised him from the dead more. And this is what he says in verse 12. He says, I don't mean to say that I've already achieved these things or that I have already reached perfection, but everybody say this with me, but I press on to possess that perfection for which Christ Jesus has first possessed me. He says, no, dear brothers and sisters, I have not achieved it, but I focus on this one thing, forgetting the past and looking forward to what lies ahead. And then he says it again, I press on. And so Paul's mission still in life was, I'm going to keep going further. I'm going to keep moving further. There's more of God that I can experience. There's more that I can do for God. And so whenever we have the tendency to kind of step off the gas, let's remember, you've not reached heaven. Keep on going. And so he says, Let all who are spiritually mature agree on these things. And if you disagree on some point, I believe God will make it plain to you. I love that Paul is a man of sass. 
If you read what he's saying, he's basically saying, I'm right in this, and if you disagree, you're wrong, but it's okay. Go talk to God, and he'll straighten you out. I love that. And he says, but we must hold on to the progress that we've already made. Where you, God has brought you today is not the end. He's got more for you. He's got more miracles he wants to work through your hands. There's more people he's wanting to reach for the glory of God through your life. So whatever you've done in your life up till this point, God's still got more. So back to Exodus chapter 13 and 14. God delivers them out and they're now, they're, they're leaving and it says that they left with their hands raised against the Egyptians. They were like, yeah, we're leaving with all your stuff. Yeah, this is awesome. And it says in verse 19 of chapter 13 that Moses took the bones of Joseph with him and for Joseph had made the sons of Israel swear to do this and he said, God will certainly come to help you and when he does, take my bones with you from this place. And so they're leaving, they're all in great spirits. It's like God has opened the doors, we're just on our way out of here. Oh, hallelujah! And then we find it just a few verses later. It says, as Pharaoh approached, the people of Israel looked up and panicked. So it's gone from party to panic in 10 verses. Party to panic in 10 verses. And it says, when they saw the Egyptians overtaking them, they cried out to the Lord. And I told you last week that that cry out to the Lord there wasn't a good cry out to the Lord. It was a grief-stricken wail, if you read the Hebrew in that. It was not like, oh my goodness, God, come to our rescue. It was more of a, And they said to Moses, why did you? It's funny, when you get into a little bit of hardship, that sometimes it's easier to point out everybody else than point at yourself. And so their focus isn't on them, their focus is on Moses. And he says, why did you bring us out here to die in the wilderness? Weren't there enough graves in Egypt? What have you done to us? Why did you make us leave Egypt? And I said this last week. You don't make a group of two million people go anywhere that they don't want to go. You might be able to make one forced to go in your direction, but two million people, they walk there on their own accord. And it says, didn't we tell you this would happen while we were still in Egypt? And the answer is no, no, they didn't. They left with their hands raised and yeah, this is awesome. And they said, leave us alone and let us be slaves to the Egyptians. It's better to be a slave in Egypt than a corpse in the wilderness. So their, their perspective of what the future was about to bring to them was, we're all about to die. Now, I got, I got to ask you, you've just saw 10 amazing miracles happen. It didn't look like the Egyptians were ever going to let you go. And now God has miraculously delivered. And not only that, there's none sick among you. And you're leaving with all their silver and gold. Do you not think God could do it again? And the big lie of the enemy, he wants you to believe that God's done doing miracles for you. He's a liar. But 430 years of slavery, their mentality was stuck. 
And we told you last week that a stuck mentality will cause you to forget and to doubt the promises of God that he has given to you. God had spoken to their forefather Abraham. He said, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to bless you. And through you, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. And this is to you and to your descendants. They were his descendants. They were the one that God was talking about. But yet they had forgotten the promise that God had given them. And we're no different than they are. We often look at situations that are going on in our lives and we forget the things that God has said about us. But you know that all the blessings that God promised the children of Israel, you live in a better promise. I love the book of Hebrews that says this in chapter 8, verse 6. But now he, and the he in this verse is Jesus they're talking about, has obtained a more excellent ministry inasmuch as he is also the mediator of a better covenant, which is established on better promises. And so if God looked down and did these things for the children of Israel, how much more you in a better covenant on a better promise? God is not done doing miracles today. God is not done delivering today. God is not done setting the captives free today. God is not done healing bodies today. God is not give it, done giving opportunities today. You live in a better covenant built on better promises. And so God comes through again for them. We remember the story. Moses tells the people, okay, everybody, let's just stand still and let God work. And God says, why are you telling them to stand still? Get moving. And it's always easier to steer a ship that's not docked. It's easier to drive a car that's not in park. And the easiest way out of your situations is just start moving and let God begin to work with you. And so God comes through and he delivers them. The Egyptian army is drowned behind them. And in verse 31 it says this, When the people of Israel saw the mighty power that the Lord had unleashed against the Egyptians, they were filled with awe before him. And they put their faith in the Lord and in his servant Moses. Now we would think that after this verse, everything got better for them. <laughs> But faith today doesn't mean faith always. And people are trying to live off of yesterday's faith. You get to believe every day. It says that we've been called to live a life of faith, not a moment of faith. And so in this moment, in verse 31, they were in faith. They were in awe of God. But this is where they find themselves just a few verses after that. Then Moses led the people of Israel away from the Red Sea, and they moved into the desert of Shur, and they traveled in the desert for three days without finding water. So this is three days after them standing in awe. This is three days after them stepping into faith and believing in God and believing in his servant Moses. This is three days. You know, a lot can happen in three days. The Israelites went from faith to fear in three days, and Jesus conquered the grave in three and it says, when they came to the oasis of Marah, 
the water was too bitter to drink. And so they called the place Mara, which literally means bitter. And I think it has less to do with the water and more to do with them, but that's a side note. Then the people complained and turned against Moses. Three days, people. Three days. What are we going to drink, they demanded. And so Moses cried out to the Lord for help. Now, this is a different cry out to the Lord. This is a, he's seeking God for his wisdom and direction. And it says, the Lord showed him a piece of wood. When you cry out for wisdom and direction from God, he shows up. Now, you would think that the way God shows up or the way we would want him to show up is him to be like, hey, look left, here's a good water stream. Because that would make sense that there's a pre-existing stream that's already done there. But that's not what God told them to do. Sometimes God will take the things that you view as rotten and turn them around for good. That's what Paul said in Romans chapter 8. That all things work together for those that love them. So maybe your perspective of the situation needs to change and maybe God can use what you're in right now to get you to where you're going. And so the Lord showed him a piece of wood and Moses threw it in the water and this made the water good to drink. And everybody's back to happy again. You know, we've had all the, all the, the ten plagues that delivered them. We've had the, the, Isra- the, the Egyptian army being drowned to set them all the way out so that the Egyptians aren't coming that. Now we've had God supplied them water. You would think that they would begin to understand that what God has done once, he'll do again. You'd think. That's exactly right, Rob. You would think. But just a few verses later in chapter 16, it says... Then the whole community of Israel set out from Elim and journeyed into the wilderness of Sin between Elim and Mount Sinai. And they arrived there on the 15th day of the second month, one month after leaving Egypt. So they haven't even made it out of the first month. It's only one month since the miraculous deliverance. And it says, There too the whole community of Israel complained about Moses and Aaron. And this is what they said. If only the Lord had killed us back in Egypt. So now they've upgraded from complaining about Moses. Now they're complaining about God instead. And it says only if the Lord had killed us back in Egypt. Well, I have to let you know that it wasn't God who was trying to kill them in Egypt. It was the Egyptians. And on top of that, it was each other. They weren't really getting along with each other. Moses had come in and he had seen two Egyptians being treated poorly by an Egyptian. They were getting, sorry, what? Two Israelites, sorry. I'm getting all my words all mulled together. Moses comes in and he sees two Israelites being mistreated by an Egyptian and he murders them and they turn on Moses. So they weren't in a good position as they were. So now they're blaming God and they says they moaned. <laughs> And it says, there we sat around pots filled with meat, and we ate all the bread we wanted. But now you have brought us out into the wilderness to starve us all to death. (laughs) Think about this for a second. God, why didn't you just kill us in Egypt? We had all the meat we wanted and all the bread we wanted. Last time I checked, they were slaves. 
They weren't eating the good. But, you know, we have a, have a way of looking back on what we've gone through in our life and looking at them as the good old days. And if we really looked at them objectively, we'd realize they weren't as good as we thought they were. And even if they were great, your best is still ahead. You know, I think it was, we were talking a few weeks ago that statistically they were saying that we've never had a better society than what we're in here with provision and whatnot and everything, but people always look to the past and say, it was so good back then. Actually, it's pretty good right now. And God can take where you are right now and use you to be a blessing to those around you. But the Lord said to Moses, look, I'm going to rain down food from heaven for you. And so he has manna fall from heaven. They have a, a flock of quail crash at their feet, and it says they were knee-deep in quail. God provided them the meat that they were complaining that they used to have in Egypt, and they wanted. And so you would think at that point they were just want, should be dancing, being like, oh yeah, God's so good. But what happened is this cycle repeats itself over and over again for 40 years. I'm going somewhere with this. We said the word stuck means to be or to become fixed or jammed in one place as a result of an obstruction. But the thing that you need to know about stuck is that it's the past participle of stick. And stick means to adhere to or cling to. So I'm about to tell you something I really want you to grab. What you stick to will determine what you get stuck in. And they were unwilling to let go of what they'd been sticking to all of their lives. And sometimes the things that we hold on to the hardest are the things that harm us the most and get us the most stuck. And so I want to jump now to the New Testament and I want to take a look at a story from Jesus. In John chapter 5, and in verse 1 it says, Soon another feast came around, and Jesus was back in Jerusalem. And near the sheep gate in Jerusalem there was a pool. In Hebrew it was called Bethesda. And with five alcoves, hundreds of sick people, blind and crippled. And so basically what you need to know about this story is that every once in a while an angel would show up and it would stir the water, and the first person who would get into the water would be the, first, be the one that got healed. And so there's hundreds of people in these alcoves. They're blind, they're crippled, they're paralyzed. And it says one man had been an invalid there for, everyone think about this for a second, 38 years. That's a long time. This man has been stuck in this position for a long time. I always like to think about that and like, if he lasted for 38 years, why am I complaining about 38 seconds? You know? But 38 years. And when Jesus saw him stretched out by the pool and knew how long he had been there, I love the Holy Spirit. It's not like Jesus had, was having a conversation with this man, but the Holy Spirit just propped up in his heart. This guy's been sitting here for a long time, Jesus. We should do something about it. And I love how Jesus is always moved with compassion. He looks down at the hurting, the ones who need help, and he says, how can I get involved? And so it says, he says to the man this question. 
Do you want to get well? Kind of sounds like a dumb question, right? 38 years sick? Of course, you'd think that the man wants to be well. But the thing that I've learned (laughs) since I've entered ministry is not everybody wants to get better. Not everybody wants to be well. And not everybody wants to get out of what they're stuck in. And so the obvious question or answer you would think would have been, yes, of course I want to be well. But do you know what the man's response was? I can't. I can't. And he has his excuse. For I have no one to put me into the pool when the water bubbles up. Someone always, else always gets there ahead of me. seems like a valid excuse you know i'm an invalid i can't really move well somebody's faster other people have help i need to tell you that there's always going to be some excuse i think we can be the king of kings and queens of excuses sometimes but jesus still asks the question do you want to get moving do you want to get well do you want to get unstuck And so Jesus isn't even moved by the man's response. You think Jesus would be like, okay, well, fine, then I'll find somebody else. There's hundreds of people here. No, Jesus is not even moved by the man's answer, and he just says to him, get up and take your bedroll and start walking. We can't blame the man's response. 38 years has shaped his experience. But whatever your experience has been, one moment with Jesus is enough to overcome it. And he says, get up, take your bedroll, and start walking. And there the man's excuses stop. He could have said, more legitimately this time, I can't, my legs don't work. But he didn't. It says he picked up his bedroll and he walked off. When Jesus gets on the scene, get moving. And it says that day happened to be the Sabbath. And the Jews stopped the healed man and said, it's the Sabbath, you can't carry your bedroll around. It's against the rules. And I'd say that this is the ultimate definition of, of religion. They want to tell you all the things you can't do, and Jesus is the one that's wanting to do all the delivering. And so religion now finds an excuse for why this man should not have been healed that day when they should have been throwing a party with him. And it says, the man who made me well told me to. He said, take your bedroll and start walking. I think my response would have been a little bit differently. Who cares what you think? In 38 years, you've done nothing for me. This man just healed my body. And they asked, who gave you the order to take it up and start walking? But the healed man legitimately didn't know. So Jesus had slipped away into the crowd. And so here we actually have two groups of stuck people in this story. One was the man who was actually lame for 38 years. The other is a bunch of religious people. And of the two groups, which one was more willing to get back into motion? And it says, a little later, Jesus found him in the temple and said, 
you look wonderful. <laughs> I love that. You're well. He says, don't return to a sinning life or something worse will happen. And which is legitimate, you know, the, the wages of sin is still death. Yes, Jesus has done something about the spiritual consequences, but there are still natural consequences when you screw up. Just think about adultery. If your wife finds out, she'll probably kill you. <laughs> if you murder someone, you're going to prison. So there's still natural consequences. So what Jesus was sa said here, it, it was, was valid. And it says the man went back and told the Jews that it was Jesus who made him well. And that is why the Jews were out to get Jesus, because he did this kind of thing on the Sabbath. What kind of person and what kind of stuckness do you need to be to want to kill someone because they healed someone? And it really, when I look at society around us and we see some of the anger and the vitriol that someone felt, you have to understand, some people have walked a hard road. And the only thing that is going to change that is your love. If we let compassion move us like it moved Jesus, we'll see pe more people changed than saying, you can't do this, you can't do this, this is how it should be. The love of God will change a heart quicker than anything else. But Jesus defended himself and he said, my father is working straight through, even on the Sabbath. It's funny, God doesn't take a break. <laughs> even on the Sabbath, and so am I. That really set them off, and the Jews were now not only out to expose him, they were out to kill him. And not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was calling God his own father and putting himself on the level with God. So now the, their problems with him are just mounding up. And it says, so Jesus explained himself at length. I'm telling you this straight. The son can't independently do a thing, only what the he sees the father doing. And what the father does, the son does. And the father loves the son and includes him in everything he is doing. I want you to know that you've become sons and daughters of Almighty God. It says that Jesus was the firstborn among many brethren. And so Jesus' format was, I just watch God and I do what he says. I think we'd do well to do the same thing because God is no respecter of persons. You are just as much a son and a daughter of God as Jesus himself was. He's brought you into the family. He could have just fixed the problem, but he went beyond that and said, you know what, I'm going to take them all and I'm going to adopt them. They're going to be my children now. And he says, but you haven't even seen the half of it yet. For in the same way that the Father raises the dead and creates life, so does the Son. And the Son gives life to anyone he chooses. Neither he nor the Father shuts anyone out. Whew. I love what John 17 says. Jesus is praying his final prayer. And he says, God, you and I are one. Father, you and I are together Make them one with us. And it says the Father handed all authority to judge over to the Son so that the Son will be honored equally with the Father. And anyone who dishonors the Son dishonors the Father, for it was the Father's decision to put the Son in that place of honor. And in verse 24 he says, it's urgent that you listen carefully to this. Anyone here 
who believes what I'm saying right now and aligns himself with the Father, who has in fact put me in charge, has at this very moment the real lasting life and is no longer condemned to be an outsider. This person has taken the giant step from the world of the dead into the world of the living. Hallelujah. But what did Jesus say? He said, anyone here who believes what I'm saying right now and aligns himself. That's stickiness. You know, I, last time I checked, an alignment just doesn't happen. We take our vehicles in for wheel alignments. It's a conscious decision. It's something I choose to cling to this. I choose to grab onto this. And Jesus said, it's urgent that you get this right. We grab onto him. We run with him. We say, if that's how you see it, God, that's how I see it. He says, the time has arrived, and I mean right now. <laughs> so Jesus, when he said, he, I'm speaking straight, he literally, I'm, just, I'm not holding any punches. He's saying, right now is the time. That was 2,000 years ago. How much more is it still the time now? That he's been to the cross, that he's been to the grave, that he's been risen up, and he now sits on the right hand of the Father, ever making intercession for us. I love how Jesus ends the conversation with them, though. The end of the chapter, it goes this way. In verse 45, he says, But don't you think, or but don't think, I'm going to accuse you before my Father. Moses, in whom you put so much stock, is your accuser. If you believed, really believed what Moses has said, you would believe me. He wrote of me. And he says, if you won't take seriously what he wrote how can i expect you to take seriously what i speak and so jesus points out their problem you're looking for someone to accuse i'm not going to follow in that same pattern i'm not accusing you before the father but what he was telling them is stickiness is a choice and they had chosen the path that they were wanting to take. And when someone has chosen a path and they're unwilling to let go, it's hard to help those people. But how did I say it earlier? You are the only you you can change. It starts with what we want to do in ourselves. I like what G uh, Paul said to Timothy in 1 Timothy 1, verse 18. It says, Timothy, my son, here are my instructions for you. Based on the prophetic words spoken about you earlier, may they help you fight well in the Lord's battles. And here's his advice. Cling to your faith in Christ. What does that mean? Adhere, be sticky. Stick to your faith in Christ and keep your conscience clear. For some have deliberately violated their consciences as a result. Their faith has been shipwrecked. Just because others went that route doesn't mean you need to. I like what Isaiah says in the Good News Translation, 43, 18, it says, but the Lord says, don't cling to the events of the past or don't be sticky to the things that have happened to you. Don't dwell on ha what happened long ago. Watch for the new thing I'm going to do. It is already happening. You can see it now. Hallelujah. 
And so if we're going to end in one verse, it might as well be Psalm 63. It says, I cling to you. Your strong right hand holds me securely. Why don't you stand up with me this morning? Father, as the psalmist said, we cling to you. We latch our faith fully onto you and what you've spoken, what you've said about us. There's nothing better that we can stick ourselves to than you. We thank you for the great things that you have for us. We thank you for what you've done in the past, but we know the best days are ahead of us. And we thank you, Father, for it. In Jesus' name. Hallelujah. God, you're just so good. You're so good. So, so, so good. Father, we worship you. We give you all our worship. None compare to you. In all of your ways, you are higher. Yes, your thoughts, Lord, they are higher. So I cling to you. I cling to your ways, cling to your thoughts. For all of my days, I'm running to you. Yes, I give you praise, Lord. For no one else can satisfy. You and you alone. Oh, thank you, Father. You are so, so good, so, so good, so, so good, oh, Jesus, Jesus, hallelujah, hallelujah, whoo. Well, I preached myself happy this morning. <laughs> Whatever this week ho holds for you, God is more than enough. And you are loved and accepted by the Father. You guys are blessed. Have a wonderful week. Let's have some good conversations.